I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Talia Einhorn's career wasn't a walk in the park. As an accomplished law professor, she wrote countless articles and studies on important topics revolving around Israeli and international law, including a major treatise on Israeli private international law. She is also a titular member of the International Academy of Comparative Law, and she's been serving as a member of the Advisory Committee for the Appointment of Government Officials, one of the more important bodies in the state which advises the government on the appointment of people to key roles. Today we'll be asking, what is the problem with the way the Israeli legal system works? Professor Einhorn joins us today to talk about this and much more. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. So a few days ago, a week or maybe two weeks ago, you published uh, an op-ed in, uh, I think it was Israel Ayom. And it was shared uh, on Benjamin Netanyahu's Facebook page. And what, what was it about? Can you tell us a little? Well, it, uh, the Time magazine uh, devoted a cover, uh, artic- a cover article to Benjamin Netanyahu on the occasion of uh, his uh, uh, having the longest um, uh, career as prime minister of the state of Israel. And um, the career, uh, the uh, article on the one hand uh, said very nice things about Netanyahu and the state. Um, It mentioned that um, his uh, success in bringing the state to where it is, that it's uh, both from a security point of view and a financial point of view, the state is in a much better position. It's flourishing as it as never before. And um, <clears throat> now, the the however, um, the article also mentioned points of criticism, which I found uh, to be unfounded. And uh, unfounded, in fact, no research was done by the journalists who wrote this criticism. And uh, my op-ed was uh, uh, a criticism of these points, trying to clarify and put together the correct points. For instance, it was mentioned there that Israel's success came at the expense of uh, three million Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria and two additional Palestinians and the additional two million Palestinians supposedly living in Gaza. And here there are two points that need to be man- made. One is that uh, three million pa- Palestinians, uh, the numbers are completely wrong. There, uh, there is no census of the Palestinian population. And since uh, UNRWA, the United Nations Agency, that has been established especially for the Palestinian so-called refugees, gets donations according to the number of refugees. They inflate the numbers. They don't count people who had left. 
they don't count people who passed away. The numbers are completely out of touch with reality, but that's only one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the misfortunes of the Palestinian people or the Palestinians living under the control of the Palestinian Authority on the one hand and Hamas on the other is due to their very corrupt regimes who don't care at all about the population. They get, they have received billions of dollars from donor states and from Israel, and instead of using them to establish an education system, to establish hospitals, to build an industry, nothing of this happened. Instead, the money has been embezzled or used just to buy weapons, to build tunnels, to destroy, not to build. And you made an interesting point in the article as well that, if anything, the Israeli presence in the West Bank has come to benefit the residents there. Definitely. Also in the Gaza Strip when we were there, because the only, this is a major source of employment for Palestinians who live in, the, in Judea and Samaria. It's the West Bank, you know, from the point of view of Jordan, but not from the point of view of Israel. <laughs> it's the West Bank of the Jordan. So um, the um, uh, Arabs who live in, in Judea and Samaria, many of them make a living in the industrial zones established in Israel. And there are not only blue-collar workers, there are also managers and... Um, yeah. In Gaza also, the, there used to be an industrial zone with also Arab-owned Arab uh, industries. All this was dismantled as soon as Israel had left. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw the devastating effect in the West Bank. We've talked about this on the podcast before. No, in the West, we saw the devastating effect in the West Bank when SodaStream relocated. It's, in fact, they claim that it wasn't because but some thousand Palestinians lost their jobs. Yeah, that's yeah. the effect of the BDS movement. But what would you have the Palestinians do about the fact that they have a corrupt regime? They don't. They're not happy. Like if you talk to a Palestinian, they'll curse the regime. But it's a dictatorship. So will they curse the regime? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I can tell you because uh, I uh, in I even remember distinctly a case in which um, I purchased in the old city of Jerusalem um, raisins from Hebron. As a young student in Jerusalem, I came to Jerusalem in 1968 and, um, uh, to study math physics. That was my first degree at Hebrew University. And we used to go to the market and buy raisins from Hebron. Hebron, which were very, really delicious. And then so, uh, some years ago, I walked with a colleague from a foreign colleague in the old city of Jerusalem, and I was looking for these raisins, and I only found them in one small shop I purchased. And then we sat down to have coffee, and uh, we received, uh, the owner of the cafe gave us coffee and baklava, and I offered him these raisins from Hebron. And he looked at me and said, How did you, where did you get them? We don't carry them on the market anymore. And I said, why? They're so delicious. And his answer was, it's all the problem of the 
Palestinian Authority, there is no rule of law there. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when we purchase things, then we buy and we never see the merchandise. And the other way around, when we sell, we never see the money. And there is no way to enforce any contract there, no rule of law. And then I said, well, perhaps you should be appointed president instead of Abu Mazen. <laughs> and then he shifted into Hebrew and said, don't translate. Please don't translate. Who do you think Yasser Arafat, Sua Arafat, and Abu Mazen are? They're thieves. They the, where's the, all the money of the donor states? What is all this? Okay, so, so what would you answer. have them do? One uh, suggestion was made, and a very interesting one, was made by Dr. Mordechai Kedal from uh, the... Um, Uh, Begin Sadat uh, Center at uh, Barilan University. And he suggested that the problem may be solved by having what he calls the seven Emirates solution, which means, he said, when you look at the Palestinians, it's much more a family or, if you wish, a tribal society. It's not people, one contiguous not, people. Yes, exactly. And this, by the way, you see all over the Middle East. It's not only particular to the Palestinians. And therefore, he said, if you take the head of the family, let's say the Jabri family in Hebron, or the family in Shechem, Nablus, or the family in Gaza, and so on, or Ramallah, you can take the head of the family and make him responsible for the family, and then he will take care of them. He will care for his family instead of having a Palestinian authority that simply embezzles the money and takes care only of itself and its cronies. Mm -hmm. And this was his proposal. I would take it very seriously and look into it. So let's take a step back into the territory of Israel, because we wanted to discuss with you a bit about the legal system here. Um, maybe that's your area of expertise. Yeah, that's your area of expertise. And maybe talk a bit about maybe if you could tell us what the main difference since our audience members are mostly in the United States what's the main difference between the way the system the legal system here in Israel works and the way the United States has it set up if you could point at one major difference well One major difference is the role of the United States Supreme Court. I would mention two, perhaps, major differences. Okay, you can have one two. Is, <laughs> one on the house. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we are on the top floor. So, one, I would mention the role of the U.S. Supreme Court as compared with the Israeli Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court is uh, a court of last instance, and you only get to have a case heard by the Supreme Court after it has gone through lower instances. And this is true for any kind of case. The U.S. Supreme Court never functions as a first and last instance. The, facts, the fact finding is done first by the lower courts And then, of course, on appeal, uh, it may come eventually before the U.S. Supreme Court 
if the court, of course, agrees, decides that it will hear that case, it has this option. Now, in Israel, the Israeli Supreme Court functions also as an appellate court, but in addition, it functions as a high court of justice in administrative law matters and constitutional matters, whereby parties may petition the court as, first and la- as a first and last instance. This means by necessity that um, the fact-finding is not properly taken care of because um, only affidavits are presented to the court, but there is no cross-examination. There is no serious test finding, uh, fact-finding in many cases. When they rule, they can only rely on evidence that came out in the previous uh, procedures, essentially. In America. In America. In but not in Israel. In Israel, okay. it's a first and last instance. So you bring the petition and it's completely new. There is no fact because there was in the process of the case going through the lower levels in which they tried the case. Then there was investigations at each level that revealed facts. Uh-huh. And so there's no facts because it didn't go through that, that process, if I understand correctly. I can give you a simple example just to highlight this. Uh, there was a, uh, when uh, the Supreme Court was petitioned to have uh, a settlement called Amona evacuated, came uh, Arab petitioners who said this was their private land and it should be eva- the, this settlement must be evacuated, and the Supreme Court uh, decide, so decided. Then the same petitioners came to the district court and demanded compensation for the period of time, the years that the settlement existed, supposedly using their land. At this point, the state said, wait a minute, you must, in in the district court, the proceedings are different. You must prove that you are the owners. And once they had to prove that they were the owners, it turned out that only a tiny fraction of the land was privately owned. All the rest, there was no proof. Now, the settlers came back to the Supreme Court, to the High Court of Justice, and said, hey, our evacuation was unfounded. The facts were presented to the court were wrong. And the Supreme Court said, well, it's res judicata, it's too late, and uh, the settlement was evacuated. Now, this this is one example. I can take another example that the fact-finding wasn't done properly. Another case was the case of the exploration of gas in Israel. Um, the, the state exploration of, of gas, gas. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the natural yeah. gas reservoir, natural gas reservoir. The state gave uh, a ten-year, uh, what is called stability clause to the investors. So nobody it is thought a, there. Let's let's take a step. Nobody thought. Nobody <laughs> ever imagined there's gas in the sea, and nobody wanted to invest. The state didn't want to invest. Oh, oh the state invested. A lot of money, but, but found, found nothing. nothing. And, and only when the state despaired, they said, take then it, take they it, take made it. the concession. Right. Correct. And private... In, uh... But to, to break it down a little, it's not worth it for the, a company that wants to excavate 
be, to to go and excavate when the comp, when the country has said there's nothing here. Yeah. So they need it's some a, kind a of huge advantage. Risk. So the state yeah. say it, t- take a license to dig essentially well, for that, that's normal. You give a concession. Yeah. Now yeah. the it's even more problematic than that because at the time because of the strength of the Arab oil producing states, Israel had hard time finding an investor. Mm-hmm. And finally, when Noble Energy, in its previous name, came in to explore, it was the only company that was willing to undertake this. And if not for them, there would be no gas, probably. Probably. But wait. <laughs> but there were many stages here, and I'm not going through all yeah. of them, because otherwise we'll exhaust them, afraid, the time. But at some point, a 10-year stability clause was included in the contract. Now, this came before the Supreme Court, which decided... Why? Because, to, because the state wanted to change the... In retrospect, to change the contract. The, the state contract. did change the contract in okay. retrospect several times. But let's <laughs> okay. skip all that. Sorry. At the end of the day, there was this stability clause of 10 years. Okay, we change, change, change. But now you have our guarantee, this is final, our final, promise final, final, final. that the <laughs> final 10 years... now. Anybody versed in these contracts would know that it is normal to give such uh, stability clauses, and they range between 10 years minimum to 25 years. So 10 years was not at all a special, a very special treatment of the investor. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court was told and nobody really checked it completely to the end, that three states, namely three countries, namely the United uh, England or the United Kingdom, secondly, um, New Brunswick in Canada, and thirdly, Alaska in America, they decided to abolish these possibilities of giving, giving a stability clause. In all of these, in all these three countries, it was told that, and there was a lot of publicity about it, that investors will be queuing even without the stability clause. And so the Supreme Court decided that the, the Israeli the, Supreme Court, Isra- uh, the Israeli Supreme Court decided that the Israeli. Uh, framework for this exploration of gas could not be upheld because on the because of this stability clause now what they were not aware was that even before the decision was made in all three countries they went back on it they found out that nobody is queuing without the stability clause and a stability clause must be introduced to have explorations of gas. But this was... Now, this shows that there is a problem in the fact-finding in the Supreme Court. And this is because of the system. There is something basically problematic with having the Supreme Court acting as a first and last instance without proper fact-finding. This should not be the case. And And this requires a reform. They have the power today... Mm -hmm. They're the final, the final uh, frontier. Yeah. They have the power, essentially, to overrule 
laws. They have the power. They're above in, in effect, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Not only that, but now uh, full, uh, the, the court is sitting in plenum over uh, the basic law, uh, the nationality, the basic law, a law that deals with Israeli and the nation state, the nation state bill. And uh, they suspended the bill from coming into effect until the court decides it. Now, I find it hard to imagine that a Supreme Court in any state will be deciding the constitutionality of the Constitution. <laughs> Furthermore, yeah. it's not only in America. The United Kingdom and the Netherlands are democracies. Nobody would um, challenge that. And nonetheless, in the Netherlands, the, Constitution, uh, the Supreme Court, the Hochelat, has not the competence to overrule or pass judicial review on statutes. The same is true in England. There uh, is no judicial review of statutes. Have, uh, Wait, I want to no, go back for a even second. Even England either doesn't have a constitution, so to speak, although every state has a constitution, has constitutional law. Mm -hmm. England, too, doesn't have, and some states that have constitutions, I wouldn't say much for their constitutional law. So this in itself is not a problem. Israel has some basic laws that decide. There is one more very important point about the Supreme Court, that many of its decisions are taken on the basis of reasonableness. Has the executive acted reasonably or not? Now, reasonableness in Seems itself objective. is a very <laughs> subjective and often arbitrary. It's in the eye of ah, the beholder. Either you're reasonable or you're dumb. That's unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> On your behalf. <laughs> And I find this really unreasonable. That's true. Let, I, I have It's to ask, let's, let's, you know, very imaginary question in the world of theory. Let's say, let's say we, there's a politician Who, who faces uh, investigation or charges. And let's say that this politician this is, going. <laughs> is, uh, is inspired by the French way, which says essentially that uh, uh, any investigations will be postponed until, until the end. And the it. reason behind that is that uh, otherwise, what's the reason behind the French law in your, like, in, can you reason with it? I would say the following. I'm not much of a theorist, and I don't deal with theoretical questions normally. Now, with respect to the French law or other systems, I mean, it's up to each legal system to decide whether or not it wants the head of state to be investigated and under what conditions. So let's say, let's say in the United States, okay. you, need, you have an impeachment process. Right. Now, in Israel, there is no impeachment process. There used to be a law whereby um, the immunity was done. It was done like this, that the attorney general had to come to the Knesset and to a committee of the Knesset and explain or substantiate that there is a case to remove the immunity. And then it would be up to the Knesset to decide whether or not to, to remove the immunity or not. Now it's vice versa. Now it's, it has been reversed, but there are also grounds for, on the basis of which the Knesset may decide 
to not to remove. For instance, if uh, one example is if the, um, this uh, request is on a basis of um, uh, how they call it, that it is a, that the state attorney acted in a manner which is discriminatory, mm -hmm. that you don't treat the a person to be indicted the same way as others. But what happens so, if the Knesset decides to make a law, legislate a law, saying that, um, saying, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, right? Well, saying what, it, it, saying that, like a French law, and then, um, and then a citizen goes to the Supreme Court, rules, rules, asks the Supreme Court to appeals. intervene, appeals to them, and they say this law is illegal and it should be reversed and then the state says that they they legislate another law saying they're the final uh frontier and then the supreme court overrules that law as well what happens then <laughs> <laughs> it's doomsday okay, let's put right? it this way this is doomsday uh, let's scenario. put it this way first of all uh, perhaps another point should be made <laughs> with respect to the israel supreme court which is also different from all other, why is this Supreme Court different from all other Supreme Courts? There is standing for everybody in public matters. So the Knesset can work and toil and pass a legislation after some years of work. And then comes somebody from the public, the public petitioner, who, in other, who has no relation to the problem himself. He's not himself... Uh, the, or is uh, an NGO financed by foreign states? Uh, or it may be an NGO, that's true. And, uh, Certainly he may, not elected. And, he, and the court will decide, that will take the case because there, is no, there are no limits on standing nowadays before the Supreme Court. And secondly, also every subject is uh, justiciable meaning that the court can intervene also in matters of war, should there be um, how Israel exactly conducts a certain operation, and uh, these questions may come before the court. Nothing is out of the question. Nothing is out of question, correct. And this is also highly unusual. It's not only highly unusual. I don't know any parallel to these um, issue, uh, these matters in other Western developed legal systems. This simply is now. Back to my what you're trying scenario. to suggest is that, uh, of course, you know the Supreme. At some point, the, there will have to be, must be. Uh, Israel must establish rules that will bring back, because this wasn't the case always, by the way. One has to, credit must be given to the very powerful president of the Israel Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, who, when he became uh, president of the Israel Supreme Court, he introduced uh, many changes and completely shifted the balance towards the of power, uh, balance between the different powers to the judiciary. But now perhaps it's time to return the balance to where it used to be. 
The court used to be much more careful. The court, there were matters of standing. Not everything was justiciable. But to change that, you have to legislate. And then the court can, can say, we don't accept this legislation. And then what happens? Hopefully, <laughs> this will not be the case. I think once it's legislated, I get, would get like to believe... Uh, there, of course, there may be another way to deal with it. By the way, the United States at some point faced a similar problem, and that was called the packing of the court. And the idea was to add justices, so to change the balance of power within the court. This became unnecessary because the Supreme Court uh, at that point uh, uh, approved the New Deal, so there was no need anymore to change this. But another possibility, another possibility would be to change. First of all, several changes may be introduced and some already have been. An administrative court has already been established and it should have more authority. Secondly, the Supreme Court, one of the things to be done perhaps is to change the way the Supreme Court, <clears throat> the members of the Supreme Court are appointed. Because also this, there is a move to changing this. It used to be that the Supreme Court, the three justices of the Supreme Court were in the committee the appointment committee used to have a veto power over whoever comes into the court. So the court in many ways duplicated itself. And people who did not conform with what may be called the agenda of the existing court could not join. Or there were very small... Another point is, by the way, that the Supreme Court, the president of the Israel Supreme Court, has another power that, as far as I am aware, there has no parallel. It may appoint the panels, and it sometimes also changes the panels on the go. Now, by appointing the panel that will hear the case, it may the affect the result. The, the Supreme Court sits in panels, three, usually three justices sit on each case. Okay. Now, if you can decide who will sit... So the constellation of the each constellation panel. The constellation who... If you can decide, determine the constellation of the panel, and later on sometimes change it, then this may ha affect the result. Now, it is said that this is done in an administrative way, but many people doubt that too. The power should be removed. So let's the fact that such a power exists in the law, this is part of the law, should be changed also. So I think, okay, let's take a step back for a second and talk about the difference between the way that judges are appointed in the United States and in Israel and how, how, what are the differences there and wh why is okay. it so bad the way it happens here? You know, I, it's difficult to say. I mean, every system has its uh, pros and cons. So I don't, I haven't, I've never given enough thought to the question how the justices should be appointed. There should be perhaps more transparency in the way of appointment. Maybe randomly so let's from start the with, Shuk. Let's start with how are they appointed. In Israel, there is a committee in, uh, in the members of which are, uh, there are two members of the Bar Association, 
which in Israel is a mandatory bar association. There are two members of the executive, two members of the Knesset, and three members of the, uh, of the judiciary, of the Supreme Court. So they help elect themselves. So as soon as there is a, the Supreme Court ha, used to have a complete veto over who joins the Supreme Court, and that in itself they have is veto? problematic. The, Everybody it, has a veto? No, no. The th- and the three justices always vote as one. They don't have differing opinions. So they because all they can't come, or because they don't? They, they don't. Hopefully they don't do it when they judge, when they rule. No, but I, I'm saying... Be... No, no, no. Yeah. This is, I'm talking about the appointment. Like, yeah, I know. The appointment committee. Now, um, f- there may be many ways of changing this. I must say this is not within my field of expertise. I would leave this as a matter to think about. But... It, it is clearly uh, a problem if too much power is given to the Supreme Court in deciding who the members are. That's one thing. Let's, let's take it to the other extreme. What's the yeah. problem with, and maybe this is too theoretical of a question, but what's the problem with having the Supreme Justices being voted in by the population to a popular vote? I cannot... Uh, you can't the say question that, uh, that is, it's necessarily bad. I cannot, of course, I cannot say that it's necessarily bad, but sometimes it, um, you know, let's say if, you, if I looked at what happened with Justice Kavanaugh when he was appointed, and I watched this show, that was rather difficult. Um, Eventually, it came out well, he was appointed, and so on. But what happened in between, or uh, there was another case, I remember in the early 90s, another justice was appointed. Uh, yeah, and, I can't remember. But, um, uh, you know, it's a big question if you want it, because Israel is tiny. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another difference. So you take somebody from... Um, and you want to get, of course, the best jurists on the court. And uh, it's a big question which way to do it. Let's say I can give you another example. In England, I noted, I looked into it, you don't become a justice of the UK Supreme Court unless you went through all the... The proceed the first became a justice, a judge of the High Court of Justice, and then the appellate court, and only after these two instances you may become appointed to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Would so this maybe- be uh, in the Netherlands? This is almost always the rule, except for criminal law cases. Now, I'm not sure that this is the because this way you can also see how people act as judges. Because to be a judge is different than being a lawyer. You have to have the, uh, the spirit for that. You have to have the patience to hear the parties. You have to be very learned in the law. Now, maybe that would be a good idea. But on the other hand, if I look at Israel's history, some of our best judges, justices of the Supreme Court, didn't go through all these stages. So we mm. would have missed them. 
I don't know. I don't have a full answer to your questions because... So I have to ask you something yeah. else then. You said that you think that sooner rather than later, we need to redefine the rules of the game, right? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, okay. So, but if, if you see that so clearly, if it makes so much sense, how come the left... Uh, Haaretz newspaper and, and other left-wing um, pu- publications and politicians and public voices Ac- oppo- and academics oppose with all their might. What you suggest is obvious. What, <laughs> what they can see that you can. Well, I would put protect it th- the system so fiercely. Of course, also the system protects itself. Yes. Now... I suppose, perhaps, I don't have a clear answer to that, but w- one of my suggestions may be, as you mentioned before, I'm a member, a titular member of the International Academy of Comparative Law. Now, to become a titular member of this academy, I dealt and still, for in the last, in the past, um, almost... Um, 30 years or so, maybe more, 40 years, have been dealing all the time with different legal, foreign legal systems, comparing them. I learned the languages to do that because you cannot understand the legal system from within unless you learn its language. Right. So on the way, I had to learn German and French and Spanish and, uh, and Finnish, Dutch. Finnish, right? On... Finnish, no, no, I didn't learn okay. Finnish, no, but the other Scandinavian yeah, languages Scandinavian I can languages, read, yeah. that's true. Now, and of course, English and Hebrew. So it gives you, um, doing comparative law makes you very modest and you keep seeing the advantages and disadvantages of your own system as well as other systems. You become much more critical. And um, there hasn't been in recent years enough criticism within the Israeli legal system. The, there are no case notes are published criticizing decisions of the Supreme Court. People tend to say that our system is fantastic or is great Nothing needs to be changed or improved. But this is not based on any comparison with other systems or with what should be. So um, I guess that I look at things much more from without, but also from within. I mean, doing comparative law is... But in a state that run, that is, that the people, some of the people who run it are really religious people, people who think bad things about gay rights, about uh, freedoms of secular people. Uh, let's drop even the Arab issue. Can't you understand why some people on the left wing would fear the day in which the country would be able to legislate something that says, let's say, we cannot eat out on Shabbat, and there will be no Supreme Court to make sure that can't be legislated. Don't you understand that fear? I would put it dif- uh, this way. Even the best con- constitution cannot guard against, um, a, let's say, a, a majority that would think differently. 
So the question is what the population, the composition of the population would be like. The fact is that the court used to be much more, when the court used to be much more restrained, there was much more, if you wish, of religious coercion in the state. Nowadays, um, uh, the, the court is much more active. I don't know if this would really change back and forth. I mean, I think that in Israel, the, in Israel there is a lot of noise, but in fact people learn to, have learned to live together. I see that all the time around. Well. I mean, it may, we <laughs> argue a lot. We argue like, fortunately, we argue like in a family. It's a big family and people, Israelis, are, you know, they say that if you put one Jew on a desert island, he will build two synagogues, the one he will pray right. in and the one he will never set his foot in. I mean, some, so, here and there a gay man gets stabbed, but, you know, that's only occasional. First of all, that's <laughs> very unfair. I think that the level of crime is not... Uh, if something happens, if people are stabbed, by the way, also if they're not gay. And secondly, yes. we know that in certain places they're... Oh, okay, <laughs> I don't... I'm sorry, I'm just in a provocative mood, I no, guess. No, but it's but not... It's, I think that fear. on the whole... Yeah. There is no reason. I wouldn't be. But, I have no fears of this kind at all. Okay. I want to. I want to clarify because you said that when the court was more restrained, then there was more poli- uh, quote unquote religious coercion. Uh, I would put it differently. I would say that when the state was established, um, its founders never thought of. They they considered the Shabbat a very important thing. If you look at poets like Bialik, who was the national bard, if you wish, he spoke of the Shabbat as something that has to be respected and how important it is for the Jewish people. So, and also Ben-Gurion, you know, he had a Bible um, class in, uh, he kept it the whole while, and Netanyahu, in fact, revived it. And uh, the people in general in Israel are pretty traditional, I think. The whole population is traditional. Now, I think there has been a shift because of modern times, because we're more permissive, because of education, because of many reasons. I wouldn't expect, uh, I don't think this was because of the legal system. It's not the legal system that really decides these matters. A legal system, as good as it may be, cannot change the whole atmosphere in the state. It may do certain things, definitely did a lot in the case of the rights, gay rights, it's true. It really broke new horizons. Also, by the way, of... Uh, Women. A, one of the examples would be perhaps the um, uh, surrogate mothers. When they were still not recognized anywhere, in Israel, already surrogacy was accepted mm-hmm. in, internationally. I mean, if you go out of the country, you have the surrogacy outside. By the way, this is a matter of pri- The court used a lot, by the way, private international law. For instance, the recognition of... We don't have civil marriage in Israel, not mm-hmm. even today. 
But as early as uh, in the first years of the state, a couple who went to Cyprus and got married there, a Jew and a Catholic uh, woman, uh, a Jewish man, a Catholic woman, the court said, well, we must have them registered as married here because they did it somewhere else. So the court, in fact, used private international law since even the, the very solid and conservative court did these things already then. Mm -hmm. By the way, the court in the early years of the state also decided all the basic rights by common law. Mm -hmm. Freedom of expression, that was a decision of Justice Agaganath. Um, but you're saying that the court back then was restrained on its own volition because the same system was, still existed in the same constellation, the same laws still applied, meaning you could bring court cases to the court. No, no, you couldn't. You it couldn't. was only if you were personally affected. Let's uh, say so this was couple. only in the wake of Aaron Barak that you could actually bring Yes, cases. he opened everything. I see. And would you say that part of the problem in Israel is that there is no... I mean, I know that there's there's the legislation of basic laws, which seems to be towards building a constitution, but that there's no constitution, so there's no foundation to look to? Oh, that I wouldn't say. There is, of course, a foundation. It was even... Declaration. Not only that, because if I look, let's say, freedom of occupation, it was decided in the very early years of the state. The freedom of occupation, freedom of expression, freedom of um, the... But do these have the same legal standing as a constitution? It to a, by and large, yes. Look, England, even today, doesn't have a constitution. And nonetheless, it has clear, good constitutional law and constitutional norms. Because the idea of having the constitution in writing, it's a good thing to have, but it doesn't really... I mean, the best constitution won't help if the population, if there is no enforcement of the rules and the other way around. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a safe. It's good against uh, those who will not break into it. But it won't, uh, the Constitution is also, by the way, the Netherlands, as I told you, has a Constitution, and nonetheless, the Supreme Court, the Ocherat, is does not have the, rule, the competence to pass judicial review on statutes. So there are different ways, and nobody would say that the Netherlands isn't a democracy or that England isn't a democracy. So there is a lot to be improved, and perhaps someday Israel will or will not have a constitution. Mm -hmm. But I think we have a pretty good, prote pretty good protection of civil and religious rights in the state. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to ask also something about the nationality law, the law of the the national nation. state bill. Yeah, you supported it. I, of I course. Guess. Yeah, essentially the law, the nation state bill. You want to summarize it for someone who doesn't... Essentially, after having a law that protects uh, civil rights and after religious rights are guaranteed in Israel and all the private rights are guaranteed, property rights, freedom of occupation is guaranteed, um, one of the things that was not yet guaranteed by a basic law was the state of Israel as the nation-state of the Jewish people. Now, that's important because Israel, the raison d'etre of the state of Israel is 
that it's a safe haven for Jews worldwide. That's where they can come, they can immigrate, they can bring all their family members, and so on. And this is the only state for that is uh, of the Jewish people. And we know the history, the, from history we learned that when we didn't have a state, our situation was often or many times very, very bad. So the nation-state um, law, basic law, comes to guarantee the, that Israel is the state of the Jewish people, that the flag is the flag that we have today, the anthem, the language, the Hebrew language, with a special standing for Arabic, and uh, this is more or less it. What's the problem? Uh, what's the problem? Now, the <laughs> left says that we should add into it equality for everybody. But that's incorrect. I mean, even if you look at the British mandate, the text of the British mandate said the following. Political rights were given only to the Jewish people in the British Mandate, and for all other minorities, it was written there that their civil and religious rights will be protected. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you protect the civil and religious rights, there we're all equal, and it should be, full equality should be there, Moreover. equality of opportunity and so on. But when it comes to nation, Israel is not the state of all its nations, but it is the state of the Jewish people, in which other people live with freedom, freedom of occupation, freedom of expression, freedom of to practice religion, freedom not to Meaning practice religion. Meaning, in a sense, religion. it only denies a right from people who aren't already citizens. No, it denies a right of, um, uh, of other nationalities. I yeah. mean, other nationalities don't have self-determination in Israel. Yeah. Israel is the state of self-determination of the Jewish people. In essence, if you do the change that the left wanted in the law, you could rule, you could apply um, uh, to the Supreme Court and say um, we should change the law of return because it's, it, it stands against uh, the nation-state bill that they want to legislate, right? Because if everybody is equal, then this, is, this law, the law of return, is not equal. Definitely. So let's... Let's Definitely. give everyone the law of return, the, the right to return. Yeah, yeah, correct. So I, I have maybe a question we'll finish on because okay. we only have a little more time. But I, I have one question about, because we talked about all these basic rights that are protected according uh, by basic laws and there's no constitution. Is there, a, is there a basic law that protects freedom of speech? Well, yes, because the human rights and dignity protects also the freedom of speech because... To express ourselves, we have freedom of expression, and that's human dignity, part of human dignity. Hmm. So uh, definitely, why, why human dignity ask? and property. Uh, just because I, I felt it was fitting for this format to ask wow. about freedom of speech, but I wasn't sure if we there was actually so many human dignity things. and free and liberty. That's the basic law of human dignity but, and, and it liberty. It stipulates freedom to say anything you want. This is clear because if you look at the. At the, this law, it clearly comes to allow you to express yourself, to to do, uh, to realize yourself, and so on. And this has been protected in Israeli law to extremes, by the way, that even other countries don't. For instance, 
in the name of protection of the freedom of expression, even blatant factual lies were allowed to run. So, which is in a way sad because the idea is to have a market of ideas and we can argue the ideas. But uh, here too, the court went, in my opinion, a bit too far. But nonetheless, uh, freedom of expression is really guaranteed in the Israeli system. Let's hope for that the time being. this. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I think that this is something that this is too deep in, I think, in Jewish. In Jewish yes. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, we love to talk. <laughs> in fact, Maybe too much. What? I said, we love to talk. Jews love to talk. Maybe too Not much. Not only to talk, to argue. Yeah. To argue. Yeah. I mean, what is in fact the Talmud? It's the, it's all arguments, arguments, arguments. Right. What we agree upon, what we don't agree upon. It's uh, the whole way. Professor And, Einhorn, um, do you, you have Twitter. Do you tweet in English sometimes, right? Occasionally there's an English... Relatively rarely. Okay. Relatively rarely. I thought today that perhaps I should do right. that too. Anyway, how can people find you on Twitter? Ah, Talia Einhorn. Okay. And in Hebrew uh, or in English? Or is English. Your, name in, your name's in English on Twitter. Yes, my, my name is in English. And your books, are they available to purchase in English? Yeah, sure. Of course. On where? Uh, you go into Amazon. On Amazon. Uh, of course. Perfect. That's so the way nowadays yes. that everybody looks for it. So guys, if you're interested in reading, search Talia Einhorn on uh, Amazon. There is another thing. There is the SSRN.com. That's the website of the Social Sciences Research Network. SSRN. SSRN.com. And there the publications on the status of the land of Israel or Judea and Samaria and the settlements and all other interesting subjects Great. in so English guys, and Hebrew. Read up, get your facts straight and uh, check out Talia Einhorn on, online. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating. Thank you very much really for was. having me. It was, it was enlightening. Go. We have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Have you heard of the Jewish Journal? JewishJournal.com. They're a news yeah, outlet in L.A., Um, and they have great columns, they have great podcasts. Uh, so check them out, guys, jewishjournal.com. And, and we accept donations because we do it on our free time. So if you like what we do, please go to 2njb.com slash donate and help us out. And that is it. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.